God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from the land of Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Good morning, brothers and sisters and friends and family. Welcome to Camden Avenue Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Keith, and a glorious opportunity to have seven baptisms this morning. Um, And then we also get the uh, amazing blessing of enjoying the Lord's Supper as well. And that is for all those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have indeed been baptized. And we'll do that toward the end of the service. Um, We have been studying Zechariah for months. Has it been? It's been months, right? It's been a long time. Um, And we're actually in Zechariah chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. It is on your handout, or you may open up your Bible, or there's a pew Bible that's next to you. You can use that as well if you so desire. Um, And we've been looking at God's movement in human history, his movement in his church, and how he uh, engages mankind in such a way to bring about the very real promises that he made through the prophets, through the Old Testament, and uh, through to the early church. Um, Now, God moving is is not a big deal. We miss it, though. We miss it as a people, and we miss it as a church, not because we can't see it. Even if you're immature in the faith, you can see God moving in particular ways. But we miss the movements of God because we like to take credit for it. Uh, And we will... will, uh, look at something that God has done and we will use science or we'll use uh, technology or some type of human wisdom to explain the miraculous nature of God moving and doing things in the lives of his people. Last week in Zechariah 10, the first five verses, we saw that it was God alone who was responsible for prospering his people. It was God alone who was responsible for taking out the leaders who were corrupt and putting in new leaders, in particular his son Jesus Christ. And as we get to this section in Zechariah today, we will see that it's God alone who's responsible for restoring a people, for taking a people and making them holy. For taking a people that he calls by name, his own sheep, and making them a people set apart to bring him honor and glory both now and forever. And we'll see that here in this passage. So I'd like to, over the next few minutes, look at three things. One, how God moves. Two, how God moves on those that he gathers, and number three, how God moves through his son. How God moves first. That means he moves, he's the primary mover, he moves first. And then secondly, how he moves um, on those that he gathers, his sheep, and then how he moves through his son. Point number one, how God moves first. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
And the Apostle John comes back later in 1 John 4 and says, We love because God first loved us. A prevailing theme throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is that God is the one who initiates the action with mankind. He moves, He selects, He chooses, He loves. And so anybody that's responded to God in any way that's favorable is because of the work that God has started in the life of those that He will redeem. Look at verse 6 again. God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I have not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. A lot of eyes in there and none of them are us. A lot of eyes and it's all the great I am God doing all this work. He says, I will strengthen you. I will save you. I will bring you back. I will have compassion on you. I will make you as a people as though you were never rejected. I will be your God. I will answer your prayer. God says, he keeps saying, this is me doing the work. And therefore, when we witness these movements of God engaging people and revealing the holiness of who he is and the holiness of his son and revealing the depth of our sin. And when people cry out for mercy and desire to be saved in Christ, this is God's doing. It's his mighty hand at work. And so we hit a verse like uh, verse 6 in Zechariah 10, and it's so radically theocentric. It makes much of God and little of man, and we don't like that. We like to make a little bit of God and much of man because that brings us glory and honor The promises that God made to strengthen the weak and to save us from the enemies of sin and death. The promises that he made to bring us home, to bring us to his home. The promise that he made to restore us, to make us a holy people. He made those promises to all those from the beginning to the end that he calls out and makes his own sheep. In the passage here, he refers to Judah which represents the southern kingdom, and he refers to Joseph. In the next verse, in verse 7, it's Ephraim, Ephraim, which represents the northern kingdom. Neither of which, by the way, were in existence at the time of the prophecy. Judah had fallen. The northern kingdom had fallen as well. So what God is saying here through the prophet is that he will bless, he will strengthen, he will save, he will restore, and he will bring home all his people throughout all time. From the beginning to the end, God will be the one who does this great work of restoration. Not because of anything that we have done to deserve it. Not because of anything that we've done to make God want to restore us. But because, as the passage says, because of his compassion on us. And that means something radical, saints, which I imagine most of us don't like either. That means anyone who knows Christ as Lord and Savior, anyone who is inside the kingdom and belongs to the Savior, is not here because we deserve to be here. Every single person who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is here because God has had compassion upon them. He has shown mercy where mercy was not merited. He has saved sinners by His grace. And the result we see in verse 7. Look at verse 7. The result of God having compassion and restoring a people and saving us from sin. Look at the result. Verse 7. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Spiritual strength. Spiritual courage. And rejoicing. Worship. Praise, honor, singing, praying. This will be the natural result, I should say the supernatural result of God doing a work on a people. 
When God moves to save and redeem and bring people home, the response is spiritual strength, fighting like a warrior, and rejoicing in moments like this where we gather and we pray and we sing to a holy God, recognizing that we do not deserve this and that it's by his gracious hand alone that he takes broken people and he puts them back together again. By his compassionate movement, he takes those who are completely lost, who are struggling and groveling in sin and darkness, and he brings them in and he makes them holy. Saints, when I look upon my life and I look upon the life of the church in our culture, and I say this with all brokenness and conviction in my own life, I don't see much spiritual strength. I don't see the church mighty like the warriors of Ephraim. I don't see the rejoicing that comes from the depth of the soul that knows they've been redeemed by Christ. I don't see that in my own life. I don't see it in the church, not in this country anyway. When I look upon the landscape of Christianity, what I survey is something that is horribly wrong. I've read of the saints of old, as you have. I read of the saints who fought for the Lord, who died for Christ. I've read of men and women throughout human history who have stood up for the sake of the gospel of grace, who were moved by God to proclaim the gospel faithfully, to go into their neighborhoods and their workplace and their schools and declare Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I've read of the lives that have been lost for Christ. I've read of the great revivals that have transformed entire communities and indeed nations, resulting in great spiritual strength and daily rejoicing. But more often than not, when I consider my own faith, it's contingent upon circumstances. If things are good, my faith is strong. If things aren't good, my faith is not strong. More often than not, I see my faith as an add-on, not the very foundation upon which I live and breathe every day. It's not my desire to malign the church. I love the church. And it's certainly not my desire to malign this country. I'm thankful that I was born here. But when I examine my life and I examine the life of our church and I examine the church in contemporary American culture today and I look at the scriptures, something's amiss. It doesn't line up. There's an inconsistency. The strength of the warriors of Ephraim we do not see. The rejoicing that comes from knowing that by God's grace we've been redeemed and brought in, we do not see. I was talking with my sister Kim last week and she was sharing with me a family, a pastor and their family in North Korea. They They were caught in the underground church proclaiming and declaring the gospel of grace. The entire family was brought before a portrait of Jesus which they laid upon the ground They didn't even say they had to with their mouths forsake Christ, but they told the family that one by one they had to step on the face of Christ, and the family refused. And starting with their youngest child, they began to execute the family. And they killed the youngest, and then the next, and then the next. And with every single child that refused to step on that portrait of Christ and was therefore executed, the mother kept saying to them, Be strong in the Lord, Christ will care for you. Be strong in the Lord. Christ will care for you. All the way up until the father and the father who refused to forsake Christ, he too was killed. My sister was telling me that the, in North Korea, the, those who are, have come to a saving grace so want the scriptures that they, they can't get the whole Bible in. 
And so missionaries and friends, they take pieces of the Bible and they stick it in their shirts and they put it in their shoes and they take it in piece by piece and they, they distribute it to the Christians in the country. And they'll have one, they'll have one page, like Matthew chapter 1, and they will read it and read it and read it and read it until they have it memorized. And then my sister told me they would go to a place where they know that Christians would meet in public and they would walk around and they'd say, Matthew 2. Matthew 2. And they would look for someone that had the next chapter. And then they would exchange their chapters and they would take that and they would read it and they'd memorize it. They were so hungry. They are so hungry. You say, well, what's the difference in the two cultures? Why the hunger? Why the thirst? Why the dedication? Why the strength of the warriors of Ephraim there and not here? Why? The easy answer, we say, well, they're being persecuted. They have to. That's the easy answer. And it's no excuse for us. 85% of American homes have a Bible. The average is four per household. Of those homes, 36% never read it. An even more discouraging figure of those homes, 33% only read it once a week. In North Korea, they get one piece of one page of the Bible and they cannot, they cannot look at it long enough. They cannot memorize it hard enough. And here we have Bibles that fill our bookshelves and we don't read them. We say, well, we need a little persecution. The difference between the two cultures is there's a heart's desire to know God. A deep desire that supersedes all other desires, work, family, marriage, children, church, ministry, that desire to know Christ and Christ alone compels them to seek his word, to memorize his word, to run the race to win, as Paul said. All other desires are subservient to the desire of God and God alone. We live our daily lives as though we don't need to be saved or strengthened, or brought back home, or restored, or have God answer our prayers. I know, for those of you who have been in the church a while, I know that in our minds we say all this, we want God to save us, and I know from an eschatological standpoint, you know, when it all ends and Christ comes again in glory, we say, well, we're really going to believe it then. But God is speaking through the prophet Zechariah to us today, that we might know today we need to be saved, and today we need to be strengthened. And today we need to be brought back home to Christ. And today we need to cry out to God to answer our prayers. Today, not tomorrow. We don't think we need strengthening because in our pride-filled hearts, we think that we're strong enough, that we have enough education, enough wisdom, enough training. We don't think we need to be saved because as we look around and we see the atrocities that surround us and somehow we're immune to most of them, we think, well, I don't need to be saved. Life's okay. I mean, middle class America, life's okay. I got a job. I'm paying my bills. My family's well. Everything's fine. I don't need to be saved. We don't think we need to be gathered. Because for many American Christians, this has become our home. The Bible says that we're sojourners in a foreign land, that we're pilgrims. But for many American Christians, this is our home. And we don't want to go anywhere. So why be gathered to God if I can stay here and be happy? We don't think we need compassion because we don't think there's anything we've done to need compassion from God. We don't think we need to be restored because in our prosperity, in our complacency, in our day-to-day -day busy, busy, busy lives, we don't know that we've been rejected by a holy God. 
We don't know that we need to be brought back into his presence by the forgiveness of sins through Christ our Savior. Saints, if you are not walking in the strength of the mighty warriors of Ephraim, if your hearts are not glad and rejoicing in the Lord daily, regardless of your circumstances, good or bad, then you're not hearing what the Lord is saying to the prophet Zechariah. He says, I will strengthen you. I will save you. I will bring you back. I will have compassion on you. I will treat you as though you've never been rejected. I will be your God and I will answer your prayers. That should move us. Those are promises from a holy God. So, how does God move on those that he gathers? How does he move? How does this great ingathering take place? The way the prophet Zechariah describes it, it is a, it is a movement of global proportion. A sweeping movement by the hand of God to redeem, literally to rescue by ransom. And that ransom is through the death of Christ. To save people and gather them on those upon whom his favor rests. And I love it because in the passage, it doesn't matter how far his people have been spread out. In the passage, it says Assyria to the north, Egypt to the south. God promises to bring them home. And the extent of the prosperity from Gilead to Lebanon, those are the borders that uh, Israel enjoyed under Joshua's original conquest. And so what God is saying, I'm going to bring you in from the four corners of the earth, and I'm going to bring you in to the blessing, to the promised blessing, and the full extent of it as my people once knew under Joshua when they first entered the land of Canaan. But then he says it's going to be a much greater blessing. He says they shall be as many as they were before. In the Hebrew, it literally says they will be many as they were many, or they shall increase as they have increased. How much so? Until there is no room left. And that's not saying that God's going to run out of room to put his people. He's not talking about a geographic location. He's saying his movement is going to be so extraordinary and so global that he's going to gather a multitude that belong to him that will worship his name. In Daniel, the prophet, Daniel chapter 12, we are told that many will be purified, many will be made spotless, and many will be refined. Paul tells us in Romans 5.19, through the obedience of one man, that being Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now this, this prophecy to Zechariah must have been so comforting because there were still many Jews starting with the Assyrian uh, captivity in the north in 722, and then the Babylonian captivity in the south in, in the southern kingdom of Judah in 586, they were still spread throughout the empire. And so for Zechariah to hear this and to go back and say, God's going to do a mighty work. He's going to bring people home. Great encouragement. We saw that during the time of Nehemiah, and we saw it even more so after the Maccabean revolt in that hundred years before Christ came. But the partial fulfillment of these prophecies does not explain the global scale upon which he is talking here to Zechariah. He's not talking geography. He's not talking literal Jerusalem. He's talking about the Spirit of God going out and gathering people from the four corners of the earth that will what? That will return to God. How? In loving obedience. That will see that there is a God that I am a sinner, that I need to be saved, and they will come and they will submit to a holy God. This great ingathering that's happening even now. I mean, we did baptisms this morning. A brother from Ethiopia, brothers and sisters from Iran, another brother that was in our backyard, from everywhere, gathering. A great ingathering. 
It literally says in this text, it says, I will sow them, the Jews, among the people in far countries and they shall live with their children and turn again. In other words, God is going to use the seeds that go out from Jerusalem and Christ. In fact, we look at this in the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 8. Those seeds will go out. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will hear the gospel of grace and God will bring his people in. In Zechariah chapter 8, we were told, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Let us go. Let us go together. But who would come? I mean, who would it be? Who would hear the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ and actually become part of this sheepfold of God? Who would God gather to worship him as a holy people. Does it require us making a physical pilgrimage to Jerusalem? If so, I'm in trouble because I've never been. I would imagine most professing believers in the church today have never been either. So if that's the qualification, getting to Jerusalem, then many of us are in trouble. Praise God, that's not the qualification. Look at verse 8. Something incredibly revelatory. Using the language of a shepherd, God talks to us about this ingathering that he is doing. In verse 8, God says to the prophet Zechariah, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. Now, the whistle, it's not like whistling like a dog, okay, where you whistle for your dog to come in. The whistle was used, it was a tool used by shepherds. And the shepherd had a particular whistle that he would train his sheep to know the sound of that whistle. And so when the sheep would be out grazing, or if some would wander off, like sheep are apt to do, the shepherd would take his whistle, he'd blow his whistle, and the sheep would come and they'd gather around him so that they could move on to their next place of grazing, or so that he could put them safely in the pen. He would whistle for them. They would hear the sound of their shepherd's whistle. Jesus Christ comes along 500 years after this prophecy to Zechariah, and he says something very similar in John chapter 10. Listen closely. He says to his disciples, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, talking about Gentiles and Jews. He says, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd, one church, one Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to call people, Jew and Gentile, to be one flock, one church. And then he declares himself to be the one shepherd over his church. You say, well, is that all the Jews? No. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel. Not all the Jews. And you say, well, all the Gentiles? No, the Bible says that. Not, not all the Gentiles either. Then who? Who will be part of this great ingathering? Two ways you can know. Because the question is, well, who is it and am I part of it? Am I part of this great movement of God to redeem a people for himself that will bring him honor and glory both now and forever? Am I part of that? And how would I know? Jesus, in this passage in John chapter 10, says that the sheep will, one, know him. These are simple. And two, they will listen to his voice. They will know him and they will listen to his voice. When he says no, he doesn't just mean know about. It's not, oh, I've heard about Jesus, I know about Jesus, there's something about him. If Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, 
If he is the way to the Father, as he said, if he indeed did die for our sins, and as he says, there's no other way to the Father except through me, then you got to know him. And not just know him or know about him. This is not Jesus, your friend on Facebook. Okay, this is not an I like, I don't like. This is Christ as your Savior King. This is Christ as your brother. This is knowing him. You know the difference between the friends that you know and the friends that are just kind of an acquaintance, right? If you, if you were, went to public school and you had lots of friends and you thought, I have so many friends, I'm so popular, and then five, six years later, how many of those friends are still around? Ten years later, how many? Go 25 out. How many friends? from Maybe one, two, three. I mean, if you're really blessed, maybe five, a handful. True friendship, true, truly knowing someone is more than a proclamation of faith. It's more than being baptized. It's more than reading your Bible. And it's certainly more than going to church. Knowing Christ is knowing who he is and who he is to you. Savior. King, Messiah, Isamasi. I love that. Isamasi. How, how, how well do we have to know him? Jesus said something so extraordinary here in John 10. Just as he knows the Father. Now, how did Jesus Christ know the Father? Completely and eternally, forever and ever, he knew the Father and knows the Father. And he says, this is how we must know Christ. It must be more than acquaintance. It must be more than a head knowledge. It must be a real, personal, intimate relationship with God. God the Father through His Son, Jesus. Now, we must know Him. And you say, well, how do I know that I know Him? Is it a feeling? No, it's not. Is it an emotion? No. There may be emotions attached to it. But if you say, I know Jesus because when I talk about Him, or I read about Him, or I pray to Him, I get this warm fuzzy inside, that's not it. I mean, I can think of a good movie, and it can make me like that. I can think of my wife, and it can make me like that. So it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. How do we know we know him? John 10, 16, listen to this. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Those are the Gentiles. He says, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. The great discriminating factor between those who know Jesus and those who do not, those who are saved and those who are not, those who are outside and those who are inside, the great discriminating factor is those who listen to Christ and follow him. When the sheep to the shepherd were to gather, he'd blow his whistle. The shepherd would blow his whistle and the sheep would come. When Christ gathers his people from the four corners of the earth, he speaks through his holy word, through the Bible. And those who are redeemed by him, they listen and they come, they follow they obey. They don't fight against the Savior. They don't fight against Christ. The Apostle John revealed in 1 John chapter 2 a teaching that is so hard to hear. It's hard, it's hard for me to hear. He said, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not obey what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In other words, listening and submitting reveals whether or not we know him. To say that you know Christ, to say that you're saved, to say that you're part of the sheepfold of God, 
And to not listen to Christ and to not obey Christ is pure nonsense. It's like saying, that is my shepherd and he's blowing the whistle, but I'm not going to go. It's rejecting the word of God. Listening and submitting reveals a transformed heart. Because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. He won't listen and he won't submit. When Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate for his life, the Roman governor asked him in John 18, Ah, who are you? What are you doing here? Are you a king? And Jesus said, I came into the world to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of, the tr- off side of truth listens to me. This is not a complicated teaching, but it is so disturbing within the context of the church today. Within the context of the church today. How many can say they know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus based upon this teaching? Because they listen to his voice and they submit to his voice. How many? How many believe in God, say they love God, and they look forward to eternity with God while simultaneously saying, I will not come when he whistles. I will not come when he calls. I know what he's saying and I will rebel against him. Saints, you don't have to be saved. No, that's pure foolishness. If we call God God, then when God speaks, those whom he saves should listen and obey. Out of love. Out of gratitude, out of desire to know him, the great shepherd. Some in the church will say, well, I listen all the time. I listen on Sunday. Sometimes I listen on Wednesday. I listen when I read my Bible. So James takes it to another level. And James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. In other words, it's it's not enough to just come to church and listen to a sermon. It's not enough just to open your Bible and read it. It's not enough just to open your Bible and study it. James says you must listen and obey. You must hear and do. And that, he said, is how you know you really know him. The true indicator is submission to a holy God. His voice. His teachings. This was so important that even the Apostle Paul was concerned about him not doing it. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is the great church planner of the New Testament. Listen to what he says to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a man beating the air. He said, no, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He holds up that test to himself. And Paul says, am I obeying the very things that I'm teaching. And I can tell you that is a terrifying passage for me. Because the great examination to me is what I say to the church on Sunday, am I living it out or am I a hypocrite? Will I stand before a holy God and will he say, this is what you said and you're right because I said it. And this is your life. How come you didn't obey? I will have no response. When we take this litmus test and we put it up to the contemporary American church, 
if we were to ask questions to the church today, do you know Jesus? Most people in the contemporary American church would say, of course, yes, Bele, I know Jesus. And they say, but do you know Jesus? Well, I've been in church all my life. I own a Bible. I, I, I give some money occasionally. I've been baptized. I know Jesus. All those answers are not biblical answers. How do you know Jesus? I hear his voice. Not in your head, according to the word of God. I, I hear him speak. And then I submit because I want to. What's happened? God has changed the heart and mind of the soul that's been saved. How many in the church, how many professing believers in the sheepfold of God do not listen to God? How many contemporary American Christians even know what we're supposed to do? How we're supposed to live? What the Bible says to us as saints. If 80% or so, 78 to 86% of the people in this country profess Christ, which they do. And that profession was based upon knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus means hearing his voice through the word of God and submitting to it. If those numbers were true, wouldn't the church look radically different today? Wouldn't America look radically different today if we knew Jesus as the Bible says we know Jesus? Wouldn't we, Camden Avenue, be different? I mean, let's just take one teaching, just one. Because the Bible is full of the teachings from God, laws, dictates, commandments, on how we are to live our lives. The Bible tells us how to be married. The Bible tells us how to raise our children. The Bible tells us how to do church. It tells us how to relate to one another. It tells us how to do ministry. It tells us how to serve and how to love and how to sacrifice. It teaches all these things. So I guess the first question would be, do we know them? The second would be, if we do, are we submitting to them? I'll give you one. Two weeks ago, I dealt with Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. And he says, therefore what? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations by doing what? Baptizing them and then teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. Let's just take just one teaching. How many of you, it's a rhetorical question, don't raise your hand and answer. How many of you are actively discipling someone right now? Jesus said, go and make disciples. And he wasn't talking to the pastors and he wasn't talking to the deacons, he's talking to his church. He said, go make disciples. How? Baptize. We, we did that. Seven souls today entered into our sheepfold, now baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the question for us, church, is this. Are we going to raise them in the faith? Are we going to disciple them in the faith? And if the answer is no, then we're not hearing the Savior's voice. And if we're hearing it and not submitting, what does that say? I mean, what does that say? Not a hypothetical question. And it's not an optional teaching. We are called to make disciples. We're called to teach people Christ. So I ask again, are you discipling anybody right now? Are you discipling anybody in the church right now? 
Parents, your children don't count. You're supposed to disciple them. Right? I mean, you're supposed to. I'm talking about other people, co-workers, friends, members of the body of Christ, seven members who are now baptized. Are we? This is not to make you feel guilty. This is a reflective question. Am I submitting to the word of God? The apostle said, the apostle John said, this is love for God. This is love for God. To obey his commands. And then he says, and his commands aren't burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. In other words, the one who knows Christ and loves Christ, they want to obey. They want to obey. Do you remember that turning as a child, if you had that happen to you? Do you remember when your parents would command you, teach you, tell you to do something? And early in your life, it was like, all right, I'll take out the garbage. All right, I'll make my bed. But only because if I don't, you'll spank me. Do you remember that? Was that just me? I remember that well. And I did. I did what my father said, because if I didn't, I was going to get spanked. But then something happened by God's grace. And it was by God's grace, with a change of heart and a change of mind, that my father would say, Keith, I want you to help sand the pool. True story. And it was one of the first times in my life I thought, I want to. That was three days in the sun. Mm, Oh, that's fun work. And it was the first time in my life I remember thinking, I actually want to serve my father. Not because I have to, but because I, I want to. And so duty changed to choice. That's when you know you know him. This is love for God when you obey his commands because you want to. Because you want to. I pray that we're not so foolish as to think that because we're contemporary American Christians, there's a different standard that applies to us than the North Koreans. Whole different standard here. It's okay that we're relaxed. It's okay that we're mediocre. It's okay that we're not reading our Bibles, even though we have them. It's okay. I pray we're not that foolish. I pray that we do not use the excuses that we hear so often. I'm too busy. Pastor, if you knew my life, things are busy at home, busy at work, busy at school, busy, busy, busy. I'm a very important person. It's busy for me. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus gave us an incredible parable to respond to this mentality. I love our Lord's parables. I love stories, so this is a good one. Jesus said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited to come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Listen, I mean, this could be us today. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go see to it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I I can't come now. The servant came back, and he reported this to his master, and the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servants to go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then the master who represents God said, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet are we so foolish as to think that God will have a different standard for us than the rest of the world are we so foolish to think it's okay to have Christ as an acquaintance and not as a savior not knowing his word well not submitting to the parts that we do know well 
The man who says, I know him, according to the Apostle John, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I know, saints, that even as I say this, some of you will probably agree with an amen inside. Amen, amen. Some of you will make excuses for yourself as to why this teaching does not apply to you. I know I do that well. I am the great justifier of my own sin. But hearing and not doing, professing and not listening, claiming Christ and not following Christ will not end well. I will caution you from the word of God, Matthew chapter 7. These are the words of our Lord himself. He said, many will say to me on that day, that's the day when Christ comes back in all his glory to judge the living and the dead. He says this, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? These are people in the church. These are people who claim Christ. These are people who say, I'm part of the sheepfold of God. Listen to our Lord's response. Jesus will then say plainly to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those upon whom God moves will know him. They will hear his voice and they will follow. They'll know him. If you profess Christ this morning, ask yourself, do I know Jesus? Do I really know Jesus? If you were raised in the church, one of my greatest fears, I wasn't raised in the church. I have three boys who were raised in the church. My oldest son, Kirk, has never not heard the name Christ. And one of my fervent prayers to God is don't let them not know Christ. Because they can tell you. I mean, they can tell you all the answers, right? They can talk to you about the Trinity and they can talk to you about how one is saved and they can talk about their sin and the holiness of God, but that doesn't mean they know Jesus. I have no desire for them or for you to hear Christ say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. So we see how God moves first. We see how God moves upon those that he calls. And lastly, I want to show you how he moves through his son. Because apart from the son, there is no movement. Apart from the son, there is no salvation. The end of Zechariah 10, if you were listening closely, almost every commentator said, this is a second exodus. A second exodus account. A portrait of the living God coming in human history and saving his people. I mean, it's the great story of redemption that God created and it was good and man rebelled against God and we fell and then God, out of his compassion for mankind and his desire to bring himself glory, intervenes. He comes in and he does a work. Many of you, I imagine, even if you weren't raised in the church, I heard this story when I was young and I didn't come to know Christ until I was 20. Most of us know this story. I'm going to read to you first verses 11 and 12 from Zechariah 10. God said through the prophet, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. And then God says, I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. God the Father, through the prophet Zechariah, wants the people, the Israelites, to recall a time in their history when they were trapped, when they thought they were doomed, when they thought they were going to be utterly destroyed, and God radically intervened to save them as a saving God. 
In Exodus chapter 14, we're told that the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. For those of you who know the story, God acts in a mighty way to get Pharaoh after ten plagues to let the Israelites go. They finally let him go, and now they're fleeing Egypt. And then it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. Pharaoh says, what have we done? Let's go get them. And he pursues them. Now, the Israelites had made it to the edge of the Red Sea. So they have the sea on one side, and now Pharaoh's coming from the other, and they felt trapped. They felt like they were in a hopeless situation. Pharaoh approached the Israelites, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. Listen to what they said to Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to die in the desert? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? They thought their end was complete. But destruction was not to be their end. Deliverance, salvation, in the midst of utter darkness. Saints, the application for us is incredible. Many of you may say, there's no way out. There's no way out from my sin. I know my sin. I know how it entangles me. I can't get out of this. And you're right, you can't on your own. But God sent his son to do that great work for us. Let me read to you from Exodus 14. This is one of my youngest son's favorite stories. Moses answered the people. He said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance from the Lord today. The Egyptians you see, will never, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only, listen to this. He said, you only need to be still. To be still. To have faith. He continues, Then the Lord said to Moses, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then the pillar of cloud moved from in front and stood behind them. The pillar of cloud represented the presence of God. And it came between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. The Egyptians pursued them. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into sea perished. Not one of them survived. Not one. This true historical event defined the Israelites as a people. That in the midst of utter despair... God, their Savior, would save them. It defined them and it's supposed to define us because the greatest enemy we have is sin and death. The greatest enemy that we face is sin on one side and death on the other. 
And if we had any sense about us, we would look at the holiness of God, the sin that resides in our own hearts, and we would realize that we need a Savior too. Zechariah 10, 11, he said, He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And your first question would be, who? Who is the one who will do this because I need him? Who is the one that will overcome my sin because I need him? Who's the one that could deliver me from death, physical death, and eternal death, separation, hell? Who? Who is this one? Who is the one the prophet Zechariah was talking about? It's not Moses. He's gone. It's not Aaron. He's gone. It's not Joshua. He's gone. Who? Who the prophet is talking about is one that you know well. It was fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. It's Jesus Christ. It's Christ. The only begotten Son of God the Father, who came to be our good shepherd, our divine warrior, our Savior King. He came to pass through our seas of trouble. What are our seas of trouble? I know most of us would think, oh, I got lots of trouble, pastors. I have trouble at work, I have trouble at home. I have financial trouble, I have physical trouble, my body's falling apart, and all those are real. But that's not even your greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not physical, it's not financial, it's not psychological. Our greatest problem is spiritual. It's sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's physical death, that's spiritual death. That's our greatest problem. So God the Father sent his Son to pass through our sea of trouble, sin and death, and then to strike down the waves of the sea, and that's God's wrath upon sinners. Christ came to strike it down. And you say, amen. I like this idea of this Christ fellow. Tell me more about him. How did he do this? How did he strike down these waves that were going to crush us? How did he take the wrath of God that we rightly deserved? How'd that happen? He went to the cross. He went to the cross. He entered our sea of trouble and he embraced the full wrath of God by going to the cross and dying in our place. The most sacrificial movement any man has ever made in human history. A sinless man dying for sinners. A sinless man dying for the very people that would put him to death on the cross. It's in his great work, his paying for our sins in full, that we can be set free from sin set free from death and live as God has called us to live. A holy people, a people filled with love, a people filled with grace, a people who serve one another, a people who meet those people who are in need. He gives us a hope, not being trapped between sin on one side and death on the other, but of life eternal through Christ. He gives us hope to stand before the judgment seat of God that will come for every man, woman, child, every born. The book of Revelation said that when God comes again in glory, the books will be opened and we must give an account to a holy God. The only ones who will stand on that day are those who are standing in Christ. But he not only comes to set us free from the power of sin, in verse 12 of Zechariah 10, it says that he came to make us strong in the Lord. To make us strong in the Lord. One reflection that we could have of the contemporary American church is that we're not strong. Anemic is a better word. Strangely mediocre. How can we live our lives in the midst of a deceived, self-glorifying culture? 
how can we live our lives in great strength, rejoicing in the Lord, rather than just stumbling through it? The Exodus account, I think, gives us two more things, and I'll close. During the Exodus, God did two things during their time in the desert. He sustained them by feeding them, and he satisfied them by giving them drink. They were given strength and able to rejoice by God's hand alone. And just as God provided for the Israelites in the desert, sustaining them and satisfying them, so too can we in Christ be sustained and satisfied completely in the Savior, in the one man who died for our sins. First, the sustenance. If uh, Pastor Todd, Pastor Kurt, uh, deacons, uh, Cam, would you come forward please so we can pass out the elements? The men coming forward are going to pass out bread that represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. And they're going to pass out juice that represents his spilled blood. If you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior and you have not been baptized, then it's not appropriate for you to take these at this time. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior and you have been baptized into the faith, then please take a piece of bread and take some juice that represents his blood. There are two ordinances that God gives us in the Bible that we practice as a church declaring our knowing him. One is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper. In the desert, the Israelites were hungry and were told in Exodus 16 that they grumbled against God again. They said, if only we had died in the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Most of us do not lack for physical food. but Many of us are still spiritually hungry. We have yet to taste and know that the Lord is good. God, caring for his people in the desert, he responded and he said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And every day, with the exception of the Sabbath, for 40 years, God brought manna, bread from heaven. And they go out and they gather it and it would sustain them. It would satisfy their hunger. Centuries later, Jesus Christ would come and he would teach of a new way for that hunger to be satisfied. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He declares himself to be the holy manna of God. Listen to what he says. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which is a man which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus comes along and he says, My body I will give on the cross for you. And when we take this bread that represents his broken body, and we eat it. We're saying, Lord, you satisfy my hunger. Jesus Christ says, you're, you're not, your hunger is not going to be satisfied by filling your belly. 
It won't be satisfied by finding that person that you ultimately want to marry. It won't be satisfied by having children. It won't be satisfied by that great job that you want. Christ says, that hunger will always be there unless I am your bread. In other words, he's saying, you'll always be hungry unless you know me. Really know me. And so he climbed upon that cross and his body was broken so that our bodies would be spared so that we could come and worship and praise him. Jesus is the manna from heaven that gives us the spiritual strength to be those like the warriors of Ephraim. The second thing that God does is he satisfies He satisfies thirst. Same problem in the desert. They were not satisfied. They were thirsty. They cried out to God and God told Moses to strike the rock at Horeb and from the rock waters flowed and their, their thirst was quenched. Now, most of us, I imagine, do not lack water. In many places in the world they do, but not here. We don't lack drinking water. So what satisfaction, what do we need? Saints, we are, the Christian American church is the wealthiest, most educated, fullest, most secure people in the history of God's movement. And yet you go into any Christian bookstore, you listen to any contemporary American sermon, you... you, you listen to Christian radio, and all they talk about is how dissatisfied we are. How is it that we, of all people, in the history of God's church, so fat, so full of the things that we think we need can be so dissatisfied? Because we still thirst. Why? Because we have not been satisfied in Christ. Jesus came in John 7, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the source of ultimate satisfaction. If Jesus Christ created you to know him and to adore him and to worship him forever, and you're not, then you will be thirsty. And if you do not drink <clears throat> Christ, you'll be thirsty now and forever. You'll have an eternal thirst. To the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus said in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks the the water from this well will thirst again. He's talking physical water. And then he says, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. He says, I am living water. I have read that after three days without water, that your body will begin to shut down. Saints, you go three days without reading your word. You go three days without praying to the living God. You go three days without hearing a word of encouragement from brother and sister, and you too will begin to pine away. If Christ is the one that sustains us, if Christ is the one that is to satisfy us, then we must drink from him. And so he climbed upon that cross And his blood was spilled that we might drink from his cup. The cup of the new and everlasting covenant. Drink.
It's Jesus Christ who has the power to sustain us. It's Jesus Christ who has the power to satisfy that thirst that only he can satisfy. For 20 years of my life, I chased after everything that I thought would satisfy my soul. When I was younger, it was sports. When I got a little bit older, it was school. A little bit older, it was women. A little bit older, it was career. And then money. And then marriage. And then children. And every time I acquired that one thing, I thought, this will satisfy the hunger. This will satisfy the thirst. Every time I got it, I was still hungry and I was still thirsty. And by God's grace, my older brother came to me and he said, you will always thirst and you'll always be hungry until you feed upon Christ. And he shared with me the gospel. And by God's grace, I was saved. I don't know if you know Christ. I know, though, that apart from him, hunger and thirst is your destiny. In him, there is fullness of life. In him and in him alone. God said through Zechariah, I will strengthen you. I will save you. I will bring you home. I will have compassion upon you. I will treat you as though you have never been rejected. I am the Lord your God. If you know Christ, be strengthened by him. If you know Christ, let us be like the warriors of Ephraim. And fight with whatever time that we have for our Savior. If you know Christ, then your heart should rejoice in the Lord. If you don't know the Savior King, then I beseech you on behalf of God to repent and believe this morning. Put your faith in the one who created you. Put your faith in the one who made you to know and adore him both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would forgive me for my mediocrity. Forgive me for my lack of strength. Forgive me for not rejoicing in you daily. Forgive us as a church, Lord, for not being a holy people set apart to bring you honor and glory. Forgive us as a church for not having the strength of the warriors of Ephraim. You called us out of the darkness. You brought us into the sheepfold of your son. You gave us a good shepherd. He sacrificed his life so that we might have life both now and forever. Lord, cultivate in us a heart to live these spirit-filled lives. Give us that courage here at Camden and your church throughout the world. I praise you for those that you've gathered here this morning. I praise you for my brothers and sisters who have made a profession of faith from Iran and from Ethiopia and from San Jose. We recognize this to be your mighty work, that you're the one who moves. Give us the wisdom to see your movement 
to hear your voice, to obey your teachings, and to follow your son. For he's the only one that can bring us home. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.